There is something preventing spiritual blessing in your life. There's an obstacle for, to you receiving God's benefits and God's help in your spiritual walk. This morning, would you like to know what that is that's preventing that in your life? Would you like me to tell you what it is that's coming between you and what you should fully enjoy? I'll tell you what it is. It's this right here. Wooden paneling is causing problems in your spiritual walk and preventing blessing in your life. And today, let's go to Haggai to find out what in the world I'm talking about. Um, just to introduce myself a little bit, I'm, uh, my family was a, were missionaries in China um, up until about two years ago, and uh, then we, for political and family reasons, had to, to come back, and we're here indefinitely. Uh, we currently live in um, Somerville, and I work in that area and uh, as a graphic designer, and uh, we attend Mountain Ridge. And so I actually bring my daughter to the youth group here on Friday night, so I know the Friday night crowd, and it's good to, good to meet the rest of you uh, this morning. And so um, <clears throat> thank you for having me. Uh, let's go ahead and jump right into um, chapter 1, verse 1, and just a little bit background before we begin. Um <clears throat> the book of Haggai was written um, after Israel was taken away into captivity, they returned from Babylon. They rebuilt the walls, the gates, and their homes under Nehemiah and others. Um, in those books, we read those details. They even started a, an altar, built the foundations for the temple. But, of course, the enemies of the Lord um, always want to interrupt that if possible. And so they, they got it stopped by decree of the king. And then later that was overturned. But... They didn't continue building it. <clears throat> and so um, the Lord sends Haggai to bring a message to address and confront them about this situation of an unbuilt temple for him. So in Haggai uh, verses 1 and 2, In the second year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, This people says, The time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. In the first six words, we already have a big problem here. This is a book of Israel, Israel's history, written by a Jewish prophet, and yet who is it dated by? It's dated by a pagan king. This is how upside down everything is in Israel. A uncircumcised Gentile king is, is uh, by whom they have to date their uh, books of history because they have none of their own. That's how, how far gone the, the uh, kingdom of Judah is. <coughs> Haggai mentions uh, these two men, uh, Zerubbabel and Joshua. As I read, I'll probably skip their, their titles, though uh, Haggai puts them in every single time. And I think one of the reasons he does that is because they were, yes, appointed by the uh, Babylonian ruler, 
But Haggai says their authority and their right to rule doesn't come from him. Doesn't come from this pagan king that we date the book by. It comes from the Lord and it comes from their genealogy. It comes from who their great granddaddy was. Um, interestingly, Haggai himself does not list his genealogy. His authority is thus says the Lord. And he says so many times during, during the book. <coughs> Let it be the case with us, especially those of us who teach from the pulpit here. This is not my opinion. This is not how I would like it to be. Thus says the Lord and not much else. <coughs> I think the Lord is using sarcasm. I think you could even hear um, a little bit of a whiny tone in his voice when he repeats their words back to them. Sometimes if our kids start complaining, we like, oh, Daddy, it's so far, and I can't. We, we, we make, you know, kind of that mocking. Kind of imagine God here being a little sarcastic, a little, um, he, he's, uh, he's making fun of them a little bit. Um, he says, the time hasn't come, even the time for the house of the Lord to rebuild. Well, when will be the time? It's not time yet. Well, when, when are you going to be satisfied? When are you going to be happy to rebuild this temple? And so he um, comes in and has some actually some, some fairly biting things to say to the, the remnants there under um, Zerubbabel and Joshua. Verse 3, Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in, the ha in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? My temple, this house. Verse 5. Now, therefore, says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there is not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there is not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains, bring wood and rebuild the temple that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts? Because of my house, which lies desolate, while each of you runs to his own house. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew and the earth has withheld its produce. I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and all the labor of your hands. God is saying there's something off here. There's something disproportionate here. Normally only kings and rulers and the rich could afford to, um, to panel the, the walls and ceilings of their homes. And I notice here at Terrell Road that you're maybe somewhere in the middle there because you've only got half of the walls uh, wood with wooden panels here. Um, <coughs> the Israelites had just returned from uh, captivity, I think, 16 years or, so or something ago. And in that time, they'd set up their lives and even had time to embellish their own homes. And there's a problem with that. God says, wake up, think about this, set your heart on this, uh, literally. Um, there's something off, there's something disproportionate, something that should not be, something's wrong with this, this picture. 
they had not been experiencing the blessing that the, ch the children of Israel, that the people of God should have been ex experiencing. I mean, think of it. They had been completely away in a pagan country with no land to call their, their own and were allowed to come back and to set up the city of Jerusalem and to live there. That in itself is incredibly amazing. But then the daily life, the reality was that they worked their tails off and had very little to show for it. And God had been doing that to them, his own people. He had been sabotaging what they were doing, and he hoped something would go off in their heads. Alarm bells would be ringing. Something's wrong here. Something's God is not, not continuing to bless like he has. We're the people of God. We have a covenant with the God of the universe. We can expect to see material blessing that were promised in, in the Old Testament. And they weren't, and it didn't really bother them. It didn't really upset them. They didn't take long enough to try to figure out what was going on. And so God sends Haggai to them to spell it out for them and says, this is why it's been happening. I've been doing it. I hoped you would wake up. Um, apparently, I need to spell it out for you. And so he appeals to them. He appeals to their, their mind. He's using logical arguments. He's making using sarcasm, I think. Um, but he's, he's saying, let's think about this. Is it time? He's using rhetoric to convince them of the truth of these things. He's appealing to their emotions. Literally, set your heart on this. Consider your ways. Set your heart on it. <coughs> Stew it over. Mull it over. Think it ab about it. Uh, meditate on this, what's going on. And then it's not enough for us to acknowledge that there's a problem. It's not enough for us to all, uh, also get a little emotionally involved, a little upset about it. If the only that happens, that's not obedience, and that's not what the Lord wanted. He wanted them to decide, yes, we're going to act on this. We're going to do something about this. We're going to change. And so he says, the way you're going to show that is by going and getting wood and actually building this house and finishing what you started. <coughs> they hadn't been thinking. They hadn't been worked up about this. Their emotions hadn't been involved, and they certainly hadn't been obeying. And so now he's, he's asking them to do that directly. It's interesting that they were taken away into Babylon because of gross, conspicuous sins. They had been worshiping idols and they had been intermarrying with other nations so that there was no difference between Jew and Gentile and no difference between the people of God and, and the others um, or none, none apparent of course to, to the eyes of others and I think that's very important throughout the Old Testament and, and here too. What do the other nations think of God looking at your lives? And the answer was not very much at all. There was very little to see that was different between the people of Israel and, and, uh, and the other nations. And that's why God decided it would be better to remove any testimony of me than to let this extremely poor testimony of me remain and continue to get worse. And so he took them away to Babylon. Now they, they repented in Babylon, and finally the Lord listened, as the Bible uses that language, and brought them back, reestablished them. This time the sin isn't that type of sin. It's not a big, obvious sin, and yet it is a sin 
<coughs> it's a sin of just inertia, inaction. And the root was in their heart. The root was their priority. The things of God had become less important than the other things in life, in their life. And no one, obviously, that I know of, sat down and said, okay, this is how we're going to do it. We're going to prioritize our other things above God. It just happens, doesn't it? These things crowd out the important things. The immediate crowds out the essential. And, and that's what had happened to them, I think. And so they started with zeal. They started with excitement. They started with every good intention of worshiping the Lord regularly in a house worthy of him where there had been none to reestablish that. And somewhere along the way, they hit a few roadblocks. Um, they had a few troubles. And that initial burst died down. That initial fla flash died off. And they never started up again. And so the Lord <coughs> has a few things to say about that. He does not Stand by idly while these th sort of things happen. <coughs> he says, I want a temple. Does the Lord need a building? Is he concerned with how attractive and how uh, grandiose the structure is? Does he look at Tarot Bible Chapel and say, well, it's no Notre Dame. He's not worried about that, right? Even in the Old Testament, we understand the temple and the tabernacle. That was not who he was. That was not what he needed. But there's got to be something. A cracked foundation that sat there for 16 years is not glorifying to the Lord. There has to be something there to represent him. And again, I think it's in the eyes of the other nations. They would come to Jerusalem and say, oh, yeah. We've got this two-story golden temple to Dagon, the fish god, who we think is awesome. How about you, Jew go Jewish guys? You've only got one god, right? He's really amazing, right? He created the whole universe, right? That's what you guys keep telling us. Where's your temple to him? Oh, you don't have one, huh? And they would have to say, yeah, we, we actually don't. And um, that's not acceptable uh, to God. And so he says, build me a temple. I think also in the eyes of their own children. What do mom and dad think about the God of Israel? We keep hearing these stories in, in Sabbath school about how he brought Israel out of Egypt, etc., etc. And they say that he's great and say that he's amazing and that he, um, that he provides, that he's all-powerful, etc. But it seems like they spend a lot of time on their crops and livestock and remodeling the kitchen and not very much time on the temple, so... I, I think, of course, our actions speak louder than our words, and especially to our, our children. And so he says, <coughs> build that temple. I've got to have something there to take pleasure in. It would please me if there were a temple that reflected that I am important and I am a priority in your hearts. And likewise, in the eyes of those who do not believe and do not know me, I must be glorified. I will be glorified. And it is your responsibility to reflect accurately and visibly, in this case, 
who I am. He doesn't condemn them for paneling their houses. He doesn't say that it's wrong to have a nice house or to have a have a fancy house. I mean, these wooden panelings were were kind of upper crust sort of sort of houses. He doesn't say that's wrong, but the proportion, <coughs> by comparison, this was wrong. Doing that and neglecting the other is unacceptable. <coughs> They needed to honor him with some kind of temple. Um, he doesn't specify that we know of. Um, he gave very specific instructions to, to Moses. And, of course, we know that uh, Solomon's temple was fantastic. There's nothing said about what the building actually looked like, but he wanted something there so that they would represent his people honoring him before others. <coughs> uh, verse 12 then Zerubbabel and Joshua and the remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord, their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people showed reverence for the Lord, or other translations so say fear. Then Haggai the messenger of the Lord spoke by the commission of the Lord to the people, saying, I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, of Joshua, and the remnant of all the people, and they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of Darius the king. <coughs> they obeyed. They got up and did something about it. And it shows that that change in priority, that change of willingness and obedience, reverence, fear in their hearts, it outworked itself into action. Um, and they, they feared the Lord's presence. They, they understood that uh, he deserved that honor and they had not been showing it him. Um, <coughs> we know that God is, is uh, omnipresent. He's everywhere, right? So when he says, I am with you, he's not talking about that in that respect. He's saying, I'm behind you. I'm for you now. I have, have been against you. Very explicitly, he spells it out. Everything you tried to accomplish, I put the kibosh on it. I uh, sabotaged it. I undermined it. So that you never went to bed completely satisfied. You never threw a birthday party and everybody said that was a great party because we had enough for everybody and we, we really had a good time. Every winter, you're like, man, can we turn the thermostat up a little bit? No, we don't, don't have enough. Fuel. Well, put on a sweater. Well, I don't have any more sweaters. Everything was just, just short of what it should have been. And they should have been enjoying abundance in, in the Lord because of their obedience. And so <coughs> he says, now I'm with you. Now everything you do, I will make prosper. I will bless. I will increase everything you do. Before I was against you, now I'm for you. Now I'm with you. And so uh, they can enjoy those things. <coughs> it would be easy to forget that God was with them. Especially the old timers. They remembered the day when you could look and see the glow of the Shekinah glory there at the temple or there at the tabernacle. And they have these stories from long ago. God led us through the wilderness, the pillar of fire by night, pillar of cloud by day, stood between us and our enemies, went before us, dwelt 
in the mercy seat in the tabernacle, we could see God was with us in a supernatural and almost tangible way, a visible way. And now that's gone. And it'd be easy to think, well, he's abandoned us. God is not with us anymore. And he says, no, I am. I am. Trust me. <coughs> We're going to uh, go to chapter 2, verse 1. On the 21st of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel and Joshua and the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? <coughs> does it not seem like nothing in comparison? The answer was, yes, it doesn't seem like anything. <coughs> But now take courage, Zerubbabel, says the Lord. Take courage also, Joshua, and all you people of the land, take courage, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. As for the promise which I made you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. <coughs> um. About 16 years ago, they laid the foundation, and a big cry went up from the crowd. But it was a very confusing cry, because all the youngsters were like, Yes, we're back. This is our, my homeland that I'd heard so much about and never experienced, never been to. And God has allowed us to be here, and now we're starting to worship him. And no unclean animals, no unclean people, no temples to other gods nearby. Just us and our Lord, and we're going to worship him. And they were so excited to see that begin. And the old timers were heartbroken. Because they remembered, as children, seeing the temple of Solomon. The pinnacle, the apex of Jewish civilization. God's blessing on them. The wisdom and military might and financial and material blessing that they enjoyed and represented to the rest of the world. This is what the God of Israel does for those who obey him and trust him and fear him. And this is where we worship him. And that was gone. And pagans came in and took every last bit of it, raised it to the ground. And so they got back and they built a little foundation out of stones. And they said, those days are gone and we'll never see them again. And it would be easy for them to be discouraged. It would be easy for them to think, well, that will never experience blessing like that again. And in one sense, yes, they would not. Those days are gone. But the Lord says, it seems like nothing, doesn't it? It seems like there's nothing going on here. It's going to be hard. You're going to have to work at this. You're going to have to overcome a little disappointment. It's not going to be like in the olden days. And yet, keep working. Take courage. Strengthen yourself with these words. I'm with you. I'm behind you. Um, I am blessing now that you have obeyed. And so uh, see this through to the end. Do not get discouraged. Do not get disheartened. Um, <coughs> this is bigger than you guys. What I'm doing with you is a completion and a continuation of promises I made way back at the beginning when I brought the nation of Israel out of, out of Egypt. And so don't think that I'm going to, to drop it. Even if you are unfaithful, I will be faithful to you. <coughs> My spirit, which you cannot see anymore, is still there. It is not glorious. It does not literally shine forth from the tabernacle. And yet it is still there and still working. 
and st you uh, you are still benefiting from that spirit being in your midst. I'm going to jump to verse 10, uh, skipping some prophecy. On the 24th of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask now the priests for a ruling. If a man carries holy meat in the food of his garment and touches bread with this fold, or cooked food, wine, oil, or any other food, will it become holy? Pop quiz. Priests, I'm asking you a question. Super simple question. Every Jewish boy and girl knew this from, from uh, Sabbath school from the beginning. This is super obvious stuff. Man brings an ox to the temple. They slaughter that ox as a, as a sacrifice and butcher it, and some of that meat is going to go to the priest's. Um, he carries it either in his apron or in, in the fold of his garment, and he brings it, sets it on the table, and as he does so, he bumps into a loaf of bread. That meat is holy. It's dedicated to the Lord. Does it make that loaf of bread holy? And the priests say, no, that's not how it works. The priest answered, no. Then ver uh, verse 13, then Haggai said, if one who is unclean from a corpse touches any of these, will the latter become unclean? Guy's walking around in the desert. He stumbles down a ravine. He lands on a dead lizard. Now he's got dead lizard guts on his hands. He comes back home instead of staying outside the camp and uh, for seven days in washing ceremonially and all these things. He's hungry. He goes back to his tent to sneak a loaf of bread. And off the table there, he grabs something and bumps into a loaf of bread. Would any of you guys eat that loaf of bread? Why not? Dead lizard guts on his hands, and now on the other things on the table. We understand that those things carry disease. Those carry bac bacteria and other things. Um, <coughs> they didn't necessarily understand that, but God put these laws in place, these ceremonial laws, to protect them health-wise and to make this very point, I believe. He set these things up for both of those reasons, and the priest answered, it will become unclean. <coughs> Uh, let's see. Verse f uh, four 15. But now, do consider from this day onward, before one stone was placed on another in the temple of the Lord, from that time when one came to a he grain heap of 20 measures, there would be only 10. And when one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there would be only 20. I smote you and every work of your hands with blasting wind, mildew, and hail, yet you did not come back to me, declares Sorry, we skipped verse 14, <laughs> the, the key to, to what he was saying with the uncleanness. Verse 14, then Haggai said, so is this people. They're, this people is just like that guy with dead lizard guts on his hands. And so is this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so is every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. <coughs> and so he says, because of that, because of that uncleanness, because of everything you did for me and everything you brought to me, was unacceptable, just as no one would accept a piece of bread that had been touched by someone who had been offered to you by someone who had dead lizard guts on their hands. The Lord also cannot accept from their hand the offerings and the worship that they brought. And he says, that is why um, <coughs> you would work so hard, you would bring it all in, you were thought you were set, and when it actually came time to get food for the winter, it was gone. It just disappeared. I did that. I was putting that in your life to wake you up. 
verse 18. Do consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day when the temple of the Lord was founded, considered, is the seed still in the barn, even including the vine, the fig tree, and the pomegranate, and the olive tree? It has not borne fruit, yet from this day on I will bless you. So God's using a, a uh, word picture, an object lesson. He's explaining that if there is sin, if there is wrong priorities in your heart, if, if you are not truly regarding God in the way that he should be held glorious and fearful, if that is not there, then anything you do, your work, your worship, is not acceptable to me. In fact, that sin will contaminate these things. They're, they're unclean to me, even though they should be, of course, very acceptable. We go to the hospital, we're not, worried about other we're not worried about getting other people healthy, are we? We're worried about sick people getting us sick. It only works that way. It doesn't work the opposite way. And so um <coughs> he's, he's saying the same thing is true spiritually. The, um, the things that we do that uh, I think sometimes, obviously if you ask any of us, we wouldn't say this, but I think sometimes we, we maybe fall into that way of thinking that yes, I know something's not right in my life, but if I work a little harder and I do more and I'm more involved at chapel, that will kind of overcome that or maybe get me to a place where I need to be. And God says no. If there is sin, if there is wrong priorities, if there is a lack of fear and reverence, for my name, then it doesn't matter how much you do. None of it is acceptable. I cannot bless, I cannot uh, work with and increase any of, of what you do as long as that sin and those sinful ideas, uh, attitudes are present. And so um, we cannot sanctify ourselves in doing good things, in doing um, things that should be good, should be should be uh, acceptable to God, should, are the things that he desires, but they are undesirable if that sin is present. And so also here at the end, um, I'm not sure exactly what's going on, but my, my uh, understanding is that there was a delay. After they obeyed, they still didn't see blessing. And it would be easy to be discouraged. Sometimes we want God to work like a vending machine. We put 50 cents in, we get a Kit Kat bar out. And God doesn't work like that necessarily. It is not necessarily one for one. It's not necessarily right away. And he says, what are you going to do about it? Are you obeying just for the kit cat bar, or are you obeying because that's what is desired of you and that is what is right? If your attitudes are right, if your reverence and fear is there, then you will obey when things are bad, when things are good, when the blessing comes, when they, it doesn't come. I will bless. There might be a delay. You might still see the lingering effects of uh, the former way of life. But um, God says, I, trust me, I will, I will begin to bless you from this point on. <coughs> I want to draw some New Testament parallels. And I especially want to look at it in this way. In the Old Testament... Believers were promised material, physical blessings for obedience. And likewise, material, physical curses for disobedience, right? They dis at, uh, 
nation of Israel stood before the mountain, and Joshua said, will you obey? And they say, yes, we will, and I'll increase you. The Lord says all these things to them. Um, I'll increase you in this ways. And if you disobey, I'll send famine. And if you still disobey, I'll send war. And if you still disobey, et cetera, et cetera. All of this is going to come to you. And they said, we'll, we'll do everything written in the law. Very optimistic about what they, they could do. In the New Testament, I don't see that. I certainly hope that is not the case. The disciples of the Lord all lived like animals and died like dogs. They had barely enough. They were always on the run. Uh, the disciples themselves and, um, and the, the early Christians. They had very little material blessing, very little to show for having left all and followed Christ. But they did have spiritual blessing. Every spiritual blessing in the highest was given to them, not conditioned on their obedience, conditioned on their being sons of God. And that is exactly true for us, too. So when we look in the New Testament, I prefer to look for spiritual blessings, spiritual um, reward for obedience rather than the physical. Not saying God does not bless uh, uh, physically and materially uh, in these days. But um, do we have a temple in the New Testament era, in the church era? Is it this building with only half wooden panels up the walls? That's not the temple of the Lord, is it? It's the people in this building. It's us. We are the temple of the Lord. Specifically, individually, we are the temple of the, the Holy Spirit. He indwells each and every one of us. And it is possible to grieve him. It is possible to con contaminate that temple and make it unacceptable. And also, we as a group, local body here, joined with the other bodies in New Jersey, and with all the, the church universal all around the world. And we are specifically to be a place where God will dwell in the Spirit. We are the temple of God, and the Holy Spirit dwells in you. If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. It's a holy temple, he says. And so this same principle uh, exists when we contaminate ourselves and we come into the temple of God, that will spread to others. That will ruin, that will sabotage um, the blessing and the, the progress that should exist. And so he says, when you get together, take a look at that because the folks at Corinth, Corinth were not and he was punishing them with weakness and sickness and, and even death. I don't know if that is directly applicable to the church in this age. That may have been only a, a uh, early church um, thing, but nevertheless, we should be extremely careful, should we not, of coming into the house of the Lord, again, the, the people of the Lord, with the wrong attitudes in our heart and sin in our hearts. <coughs> he says, don't touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. Conversely, if you do touch what is unclean, I cannot ex receive you, is the principle and so God promises all these things. He promises to be with us, with you always. Um, he promises that the Holy Spirit will be with us forever. He promises that, uh, that he will be with us just as he did in that day and that we can count on that. And when the going gets tough, we can rely on his promises. Um, <coughs> maybe this morning he is rebuking us a little bit. 
He was very gracious and yet very pointed, a little sarcastic, and laid his finger right on it for the folks then. Maybe this morning it's the same as well. Um, we need to take a look at our, ourselves as well. So let's consider our ways. Are we offering things that are unacceptable to, to God? Are we experiencing a spiritual drought? Again, so if our business isn't going correct, I don't know. That may, could be a sign you could take it as such or, you know, our, our whatever in endeavors we are to, to gain uh, material blessings. But this morning I want to concentrate on our spiritual endeavors. Are we lacking there? Are we not seeing a return that we might expect? Are we dissatisfied? Do we go to bed at night and say, man, I really expected more people out. I really expected more people to respond. I really expected God to, to bless and show us that he was behind what we were doing. If that is something that you've been thinking about or that's something you're kind of realizing, yeah, it's, it's been a little bit dry. We have had a dry spell. Then maybe we need to consider our ways. Uh, a quick fact check, a quick uh, litmus test. How much time do we spend on paneling our houses versus paneling the Lord's house? Um, if that proportion is way off, then... I guess we could guess what, what Haggai might have to say about that. <coughs> and as a, as a group, as a, as a temple of the Holy Spirit, are we seeing what we expected? And have you bought in? This is my group. This is the only place that I have to edify the church of God, to build up his temple. And if I'm sitting in the back, and no offense to you in the last row there, uh, if I'm metaphorically sitting in the back, uninvolved, standing back to see where this is going and whether I'm going to pitch in and, and, uh, and give to this, then God says, go, start cutting down some trees. Start bringing in the timber. Start building this house up in a spiritual manner, okay? In a, a spiritual manner. Um, yes, we do need finances to keep, keep this place going, but that's not what he's talking about here. Or not what I'm talking about here anyway. <coughs> you have a spiritual gift. It needs to be employed here. You have been commanded to edify the house of God. To build each other up as living stones. And if you're sitting off to the side for whatever reason, then he says you're not fulfilling that. And I am not glorified that by that. I want to see a spiritual house where the stones get along and can work together and accomplish things for me. And so we need to buy in. We need to take ownership of our participation in, in whatever local group we find ourselves. When we come in, are we bringing dirty things in? Are we bringing wrong attitudes? Are we bringing laziness and just complacency? And so easy to happen in all the, uh, the daily routines that and everything that we have to take care of. Do these things bother us? And so we need to think about it. Let's think about it with prayer. Um, let's see where just jobs and promotions and uh, kids getting over the next hump, uh, jobs, whatever it is that, that's pushing the spiritual true things out, what are we going to do about it? What specific st steps do we need to put into place? What do we need to plan? What do we need to give up in order to have the time to do these other things. If we realize I'm, I'm watching Netflix every night when I need to be doing something else, then we got to cut that out somehow. 
um, <coughs> replace those things with the things we want to accomplish. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your rebuke of the people of Israel in Haggai's day. Um, we pray that we would be open and listening for such a rebuke today, especially if we've kind of felt that we're not seeing what we expected. We're not experiencing either the personal blessing or the, the corporate blessing that we expected from the Lord in this, uh, in this area. And so we pray that we would be honest, that we'd be uh, truthful, that we'd talk about this among ourselves um, as to why that may be. What, what are we bringing? Are we bringing fear and reverence, desire to glorify God to our children, to other believers, and especially to those who do not know you and have only us as an example of what God might be like? Let us be those who, who edify, those who participate, those who act and are willing to, to reorder our lives and reorder our priorities in order to see you glorified. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.